The first half of the Synod on Synodality wraps up this week in Rome. What should we expect to see in the final summary? And what's on the synodal horizon from now until the next chapter of this gathering? Half of the papal posse, Father Gerald Murray, is here with analysis. Synod Central begins right now. Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send me an X post. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Lots to cover. Let's begin. Louisiana Congressman and frequent guest of our show, Mike Johnson, has been elected the next Speaker of the House of Representatives. This after several weeks of voting and Republican infighting in the wake of an historic removal of the previous Speaker, California Congressman Kevin McCarthy. Congressman Johnson won 220 to 209 with unanimous Republican support. We congratulate him. And now we resume Synod Central here in the final week of the Synod on Synodality Part 1. Sounds like a franchise. Uh, This is the most complete coverage you're going to get of the Synod anywhere. I'm joined by half of the papal posse, Father Gerald Murray, canon lawyer, priest of the Archdiocese of New York. Father, I, I, I want to welcome you to our priestly panel on the Synod on Synodality. I know there's only one of us who are, is an ordained priest, but look, if lay people can now vote at a Synod on Bishops, surely a layman can be part of the priestly panel. I guess we're all part of the royal <laughs> priesthood, right? Uh, well, we'll start right in, Father. The Synod just released a letter to the people of God, essentially a letter to itself, since they're not all bishops, as we mentioned a moment ago. Uh, It was voted on by a round of applause, a nice way of avoiding particulars like who voted for what and how many. Between now and the Synod Part 2, they write this, to progress in its discernment, the church absolutely needs to listen to everyone, starting with the poorest. It means listening to those who have been denied the right to speak in society, or who feel excluded, even by the church, listening to people who are victims of racism in all its forms. Now, Father, I have to say, given the marginalization of traditional people in the church, this is a hard one to swallow. I agree, Raymond. In fact, this just continues what the whole synodal process has been doing, which is uh, giving legitimacy to a bunch of grievances that the church is excluding people. Uh, and people feel excluded, not because they've chosen to do things against the church, but rather the church is doing something against them. Uh, not a good way to uh, address the people of God. And I agree with you, as you said earlier, that this is a little bit strange because a synod does not exist apart from the pope. A synod is meant to be an assembly of bishops that advises the pope. So they don't have an independent mm-hmm. existence uh, to go and issue documents. It's happened before, so it's not something new. It happened in 2012. But again, it's a strange way of acting. If the Senate is representative of the people of God, and that's been what we've been told the whole time through, why is it now that they're suddenly turning to us rather than saying, Holy Father, <laughs> this is what we'd like you to tell the people of God? Right. No, no, it's, it's, it's like a, a cyclical letter. You know, it's a letter to me. Uh, Father, there's another paragraph in this synod letter, which frankly brought tears of horror and laughter to my eyes simultaneously. Just days ago, 
the Diocese of Koper in Slovenia, has confirmed that disgraced Jesuit priest Father Marko Rupnik, that mosaic artist, who was expelled from the Jesuit order, excommunicated due to credible allegations of spiritual and sexual abuse of nuns, has been accepted in that diocese as a priest. So he's working again. He's back in a diocese. At the same time, the Synod writes this, and I want you to react. Above all, the church of our time has the duty to listen in a spirit of conversion to those who have been victims of abuse committed by members of the ecclesial body and to commit herself concretely and structurally to ensure that this does not happen again. Father, nobody at the Vatican gives a damn about these victims, frankly, or Rubnik would not have been resurrected. Your reaction to this? Why is he being protected? Uh, why is he being protected? That I can't answer. What I can say is that this is the most disgraceful thing to happen, particularly now when the Synod comes out with what you just read, saying that the voices of victims need to be listened to and victims have to be taken care of. Let's recall some facts about Father Rupnik. Father Rupnik was accused very credibly by multiple sisters uh, religious women that he was spiritual director to, to forcing himself upon them sexually, to engaging in perverted practices. And then he was accused of having forgiven in confession one of the people that he committed sex acts with. For that, he was found mm -hmm. guilty by the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith. That was why he was excommunicated. And then beyond reason, of course, this was never known at the time, but we found out subsequently when it was leaked but within a couple of weeks of him being excommunicated, the penalty was lifted. There's no evidence that he ever admitted to the crime that he had committed and showed due repentance. In canon law, you can't have a penalty remitted unless you show repentance. He's never repented. He's continued to claim that he did nothing. Now, as regards what happened, aside from the excommunication for the confessional abuse, he should have been prosecuted for taking advantage of vulnerable adults. Can you imagine a young sister mm -hmm. who's listening to spiritual director? He committed these crimes. The Holy See investigated it. The Jesuits investigated it. The word was that he should be prosecuted. But since these crimes fell outside a statute of limitations, according to canon law, nothing happened. All the while, we know that Pope Francis and his department have lifted statutes of, of limitation right. when the case merited it. And this should have happened here. So what happens? The Jesuits then do a further investigation to see whether or not he should be thrown out of the order. He will not cooperate. He did not cooperate with the investigation, so they did throw him out. But he continues now to be a priest in good standing. This is absolutely disgraceful. I'd like to, Raymond, this is a great question. Why weren't Rupnik's yeah. victims allowed to address the synod body? I would believe right. the, the words of that letter. It, his victims were given a hearing at the synod so that, of course, the ecclesiastics in the Vatican who are going along with this whitewash would be exposed for what's going on. This is disgraceful. I can't believe that this no. is happening, but I unfortunately I do believe it because it did happen. Well, but, but Father, what's so hypocritical about it? And look, I had friends in the secular world, non-Catholics call me when this story broke and they said, wait a minute, didn't your church, meaning Pope Francis in a piece of legislation recently, didn't he say there was zero tolerance for this behavior and even those who attempt to cover it up or hide it, that they should be removed from, from their office. I mean, isn't that what the new law says? Yes, the, uh, the, the law that Pope Francis instituted covers not only the crime of sexual abuse of minors 
and then what's called vulnerable adults, it also covers covering up these sins uh, and these crimes. Now, the real question here is, why in the world was Rupnik so quickly pardoned for his excommunication, and why wasn't he further prosecuted? He's being protected. This, this is go, let's go back to the McCarrick case. An influential mm -hmm. churchman is given preference, and until it's exposed by leaks, remember, the reason McCarrick ended up being thrown out of the priesthood is one of his victims went to the New York Times and complained about it. Yeah. You know, this is what's happening in this world. The church is only purified when outsiders come in and reveal behind the curtain that we've got a bunch of corrupt people acting to protect their friends. This is terrible. This needs to change. Rupnik should be removed from that diocese, prosecuted. And I encourage the victims now go to civil court, take this man to court, you know, sue the diocese uh, that's accepting him because they're risking the, the lives of those people. Is he going to go to a parish yeah. and now start giving spiritual direction again? I'd like to know that. Yeah, well, this is it's absurd to say, well, we have to listen to everybody. No, don't listen. Take action. Your job is to take action and protect the flock from these wolves running wild. And that's what this seems to my eye, at least. Father, we've got to get back to this synod. There's another line in this letter from the Synod Assembly that confirms what we have said from the start. Remember, early on, we said this was never about shiny objects of this hot button topic or that. It was always about hijacking and rejiggering the decision-making process of the church. Here's the quote from the Synod. She, the church, needs to welcome the voice of those who want to be involved in lay ministries and to participate in discernment and decision-making structures. Father, what is happening here? The decision-making structure in the church, this is not the way the church describes herself. This is, we're not corporate America. You know, we're not a multinational corporation, you know, with a board of governors and, and electing people to be chairman. Uh, the governing structure of the church is the divine constitution given by Christ. It's a hierarchical church founded upon Peter and the apostles, their successors, the popes and bishops, and then those who cooperate with them, the priests and the deacons, in uh, the sacrament of holy orders. Holy orders is integral to governance in the church. Now, decision-making can be influenced, and it's very wise to get advice from lay people and experts and ordinary people. You know, I trust my local parishioner more than I do some of the theologians when it comes to what is the meaning of the Catholic Church and its, and its faith. But here, this is using an insidious language of decision-making processes as if we're going to bind bishops now to have lay approval for their decisions. By the way, that's what the German synodal way wants. Uh, I hope that's right. not where this is going. Yeah. Well, look, I think most people watching this, Father, most Catholics, they can't figure out what the heck is even happening. And part of that is the tortured language. This word synod, I want to dive into this. It's now being used as a verb, an adjective, a noun. It's everything and nothing simultaneously. Here's a little montage of what I mean. Listen. Culture of listening, culture of synodality, culture of inclusion. Learning to be a synodal church, to learn how to be synodal. Being a synodal person in a synodal church. And the point about this synod, and the other thing that makes it different, is that it is actually about synodality. The truth is that synod has always been what the church has done. So, Father, they've taken a real word, synod, 
meaning a gathering of bishops, only bishops, and stretched it with the same maddening innovation that they seek to impose on the church now. But if we don't have clarity, we're beginning to see the many faces of this synodality from the participants themselves. Father Vimal Tirimana, he's a Sri Lankan moral theologian. He spoke at the Vatican this week about how some issues like women's ordination and same-sex blessings need a synodal mindset and lifestyle. Listen. I can assure you, once the firm foundation of the synodal life is laid, I repeat, once the firm foundation of the synodal way of life is laid, those things can be built up on that. In that sense, the most important thing is not to address whether a woman can be ordained, whether LGBTQ should be accepted, whether gay marriage should be blessed, not that they are not important. So first we lay the foundation, the foundation of the synodal way, a synodal culture, a listening culture, a culture that includes automatically these issues are bound to come sooner, if not later. They're bound to come sooner, if not later, Father. I've, I said it the first week, this is about changing the governance of the church. What is the foundation of a synodal way of living. Uh, 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 what does this mean, Father? Uh, well, I can say he's using double talk and he's speaking in circles. Uh, he talks about everyone's interest being part of the foundation of a synodal approach to life. Uh, this is ridiculous. The Catholic Church is founded on the rock. Jesus Christ founded it on, on the faith. The faith of the Catholic Church is founded upon the confession of St. Peter. You are Christ, the Son of the living God. We say that, and that's why we listen to the Pope and the bishops, because they repeat that teaching. And then Christ had a lot of other things to say which we believe in. The idea that we, we get accustomed to something we don't even know what it is, a synodal way of life, and then somehow the issue of, as he said, blessing gay marriage will resolve itself the yes. ordination of women will resolve itself? Uh, no, you're right. This is about restructuring the church in such a way that the bishops no longer uphold the faith. They simply answer the phone and say, well, what did the majority of people ask for? Do they want women priests? Uh-oh, I guess we got to have women priests. This is ridiculous. This is a, a, a real threat to the life of the church. Why are we having theologians who talk this double talk at a synod to tell us that the things that the church cannot do because they contradict the gospel, are suddenly on the agenda. Yeah, no, it, it's so bizarre. At the same time, Father, you and I just read this. There's a new book that was just published this week, an interview with Pope Francis, and in it he says very clearly, women's ordination, women as female deacons, it's, it's inadmissible. You can't do it. So why are we having this entire exercise, and why are people sitting there in a meditative state discerning whether or not you can ordain women in, in small groups and large groups? None of this makes sense to me. Very quickly. You're, no, no, you're right. And actually, the, the fact that these issues, as they're called issues, they're really contradictions of the gospel, the fact that they were included on the synodal working document and became part of the agenda— shows the whole reason why this synod has turned out to be a disaster. We do not sit around a table, talk about things that can't come into being, but that's what they've been asked to do. 
the popes, what he yeah. said in that book, and I'm looking forward to reading the whole thing, it's absolutely true. Mm -hmm. You cannot ordain a woman a priest. You cannot. So why would you make somebody have false expectations and say, we're going to talk about the inclusion of women in all the ministries of the church? That's in the synodal working document. It should never have been there. Yeah, and the amazing thing is the Pope even says in that book, and I don't have it in front of me, but I remember reading the quote, he says, the Lutherans, they ordained women, and they didn't get any extra people in the pews. Just the opposite. So it, very interesting that we, you know, we have the, this kind of uh, double approach where he's saying this in the book, but the synod that he's leading is saying something very different or moving in a different direction. Anyway, at the same Vatican press briefing we just played you, we were introduced to yet another face of Synod, Sister Patricia Murray. I don't think she's any relation, Father. The Executive Secretary of the International Union of Superiors General. She agreed that though revelation and tradition are basic to these synodal discussions, learning to be a synodal person is also key. One of the key aspects of being a synodal person in a synodal church is to learn to have freedom. I, yes, I have my own uh, inclinations and things I would like to see happening. But if I'm really and truly entering into the synodal process, I, I leave those aside. I pray for freedom. I pray for the grace to be truly open to what my brother and sister are sharing and saying. I pray to God's spirit to give me the, the enlightenment and the, the insight into where we're being drawn as a body, as this communion of people. Father, I have a question. How synodal have you been today and are you becoming a synodal person, the one you were meant to be? I'll let others judge that, Raymond, but the the point here again is more double talk. I, yeah, I mean, what is I this? I have, this? I have, yeah, I have inclinations that I'm going to leave aside. Does she mean the, the fact that she prays every day, goes to communion, goes to confession, talks the, to the gospel, talks about the gospel to children and adults? I don't want to leave any of that aside. I think what we know what she means is, uh, you know, women's ordination, acceptance of homosexual lifestyle, things like that, which are being pushed all the time. And she's waiting to see, well, let's see if anybody else agrees with that idea. Then if they do, then we'll all get together and say, this is the will of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. This is double, this is mm -hmm. manipulative. This is this, you know, uh, conscientization of the people and, you know, group therapy sessions in which everybody kind of says, well, where are we going as a group? Because then I'll know what to do as an individual. Now, you know where we need to go? back to the four Gospels, read what Jesus said, and then start reading the classic uh, teachings of the church. Then we'll understand wasting time on issues that are against Catholicism is not the way to spend a synod. Yeah, but Father, I, I want to I call your attention and the audience's attention to something Sister Murray said there. And this is the woman who represents religious, you know, all, all over the place. Global, she's, she's head of a global uh, a union, if you will. Notice the talk of quote, being trained in the synodal process. How long, Father, before we have synodal trainers and seminars in dioceses? And what do you think is meant by a synodal person? Um, I have no real idea, because if you look, if you go to the dictionary, you're not going to find those two words <laughs> together with a, with a coherent <laughs> definition. A synodal person, 
I mean, this is this whole notion that we've been hearing that the church is constitutively or constitutionally synodal or synodal. Uh, now, wait a minute. The church is a hierarchy. The hierarchy chooses when necessary to meet together to discuss the good of the church. The pastors, not the flock, are the ones who direct the flock. So this meeting, mm -hmm. by the way, it's called the Synod of Bishops. As you, if you look at the list of documents on the website, it's called Synod of Bishops. It's not a Synod of right. Bishops. It's a Synod of Bishops and non-bishops. So it really fails yeah. well, the test of what a synod is. So therefore, synodal, can that mean anything that's just changing tomorrow and the day after? Apparently, yes. Yeah. Well, you, you make a great segue there. Cardinal Christoph Schonborn was asked on Monday at the Synodal press briefing, just what you raised. Watch. We, we have heard the, the integrity of the Synod Assembly questioned by some because the Synod includes lay members as delegates. I, I, can't, see, I can't see the problem. Uh, it, is, it remains uh, an Episcopal Synod with real participation of non-bishops. We are all together in synod, in an Episcopal synod with an enlarged participation. Father Jerry, is there any evidence to support what His Eminence is saying here? And does that really apply to, say, marriage, the more the merrier? I mean, I would argue adding parties is a distortion to the nature in both cases. Yeah, his final words were, this is an Episcopal synod, but he just said it's been expanded to include people who aren't bishops. So it can't be a synod of bishops if non-bishops have an equal vote. You know, I would challenge him. I would say he's part of the Episcopal Conference of Austria. At the next meeting of the Episcopal Conference of Austria, maybe they should invite five or six lay people and give them an equal vote in determining the things that the bishops in Austria are going to vote on. Would he ever admit that? Would he say that's the nature of the church? In fact, yeah, five lay people should have equal rights to any bishop in Austria to determine what happens in that country. No, this is more double talk. This is, he himself mm. refers to the earlier participation, which is laudable, of lay experts. I'm right. all in favor of the smartest, smartest people in the room getting the microphone. You know, that's one of the strengths of the Catholic Church. Some of the best theologians and canon lawyers and philosophers are all lay people. I want to hear from them. But guess what? I don't pretend they're a bishop and that they can vote uh, with bishops to determine uh, what's being done in the life of the church. It's an adulteration of, the, of, of an Episcopal assembly to invite non-bishops and call them, you know, functionally equal to bishops because that's what they are. This is a big mess. This should never have happened. It's, Pope Paul VI never had this in mind. Uh, this had nothing to do mm. with the Vatican, Second Vatican Council. This is an innovation that has eviscerated the nature of the synod. And that, that's, that has to be recognized. Yeah. We, if we don't speak the truth, then we're in the dream world if we make up reality. We're not in a dream world. We're in the real world. Yeah, well, it, it and it is a radical, radical renovation of the decision making process in the Catholic Church, not the Anglican Church or the Eastern Church, which has, which has gone down this sad and ruinous path. But the Catholic Church, speaking of Cardinal Schoenborn, who was the prime mover, we should say, behind the catechism of the Catholic Church under John Paul II, when asked a question about amending the catechism regarding homosexuality, LGBTQ issues, the cardinal cited the change that Francis made to the catechism regarding the death penalty. Father Jerry, is that precedent at the same level as what's being asked here? 
Well, the question is, Cardinal Schoenberg was asked, can the Catholic Church change its teaching that homosexual inclination is intrinsically disordered? And Father James Martin has written that he wants that stricken from the catechism. He wants it to say it's differently ordered. Schoenberg, Cardinal Schoenberg has said that can be changed. And quite frankly, the Pope did not have the right to change the teaching on the death penalty. He changed the words in the catechism. Pope Benedict was quite clear in St. John Paul II, it is not intrinsically immoral for a state for just cause to use, have recourse and use the death penalty. That doesn't mean they have to, but they can if they need to, and it's properly administered. Pope Francis thinks, it's, he calls it inadmissible, it can't be used. I think he's made a mistake there. That contradicts the entire history of the church, contradicts the Old Testament, it contradicts natural law. Uh, if the death penalty is immoral, then, we ha then we're going to have to strike large parts of the Old Testament where God commanded the death penalty for certain crimes for the people of Israel. So, yeah, what we're having here is, unfortunately, this has become just like a modern democracy. Uh, we have what's called current policy, and then when a new government comes in, oh, what's the new current policy? That's not how it works with wow. Catholic teaching. So. They cannot change, you cannot make homosexual acts moral by changing the words in the catechism. This is a big problem if they try to do that. Yeah, well, I, you know, I've referred to this whole notion that you can kind of go in and uh, change the catechism here, change the catechism there. Th this is the silly putty version of Catholicism. People come to the church because of its eternal teaching that is true through time. Does one distortion of church teaching here, Father, in this case the death penalty, justify another and another and another? Very quickly. No, it doesn't. And of course, by the way, the catechism is a summary of 2,000 years of teaching. So the idea that if we change the catechism, we've, we've erased the tape on history, that's a naive modern notion. Uh, this is taught forever because it's true. Eternal truth is not subject to man's uh, wishes. And that's a whole philosophical fight that's going on right now in the modern right. world. The Catholic Church cannot cave into what is essentially called historicism, which means what's true in the past is only true now if we agree with it now. No, what was true in the mm. past is true now. That's, that's what the Church teaches about divine revelation and the natural law. Father, the prefect of the Vatican's doctrinal office, Cardinal Fernandez, was asked his thoughts on same-sex blessings, and Fernandez once again asserted that blessings can be given so long as they aren't confused with matrimony. They can be given to, quote, every people in every situation, end quote. Fernandez also says blessings are pastoral work, and we don't need to know anything about those that come forward to be blessed. Father Jerry, your thoughts on this? And reflect on this, given what the Pope has already said. Well, let's, a couple of things here. Uh, the Pope, in the response to the dubia that Cardinal Burke and Cardinal Sarah and the others sent in, he said that pastors should look for ways to administer blessings to person and persons that are not going to be confused with uh, blessing of a marriage. So it's the same exact thing that Fernandez is saying. This is wrong. Why is it wrong? The, the problem here is not that people are going to think it's a marriage. The Catholic Church never teaches that two men can marry each other. The problem is that people think the Catholic Church approves of homosexual sexual activity. In other words, that sodomy is no longer a mortal sin. The Church can never say that. This is part of divine revelation and the natural law. Now, you know, Fernandez also says we need to know nothing about a person who comes to ask a blessing. What, is, what world does he live in? You know, to people who murder people, 
get away with it? Should we then just, you know, have them come into church and get a blessing so they can parade to people that the church thinks they're fine? You know, this is the big problem. We addressed this during the Nazi period when the Catholic Church, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, in some cases, was going along with the Nazi program. Other bishops objected. uh, And, you know, what a spectacle when you, you bring in uh, Nazis or communists into a church, and then we bless them. It, everybody understands what we're doing. We're caving into the evil dictators because we want either protection or we happen to agree with them. The Catholic Church doesn't agree with Nazism or communism. Uh, no, this is wrong. Yeah, no, no, this sounds like the don't ask, don't tell approach to blessings. And I've never seen that in the church in in my time. Anyway, uh, Father, just days ago, the Pope met privately with a large contingent of LGBT outreach groups. And last week, he spent an hour with Sister Janine Gramick. She is the founder of a a gay group, New Ways Ministry. Uh, She was condemned by her own bishops and and by several popes before this one. Uh, Here she is. Speaking to the National Catholic Reporter. We need to get back to the spirit of Vatican II. The Council was about the Church in the modern world. And for too long, we have been having that fortress mentality of going backward. I know one of the dubia cardinals, Cardinal Muller, gave an interview with EWTN. And I read that interview and I thought, well, that was very good. I think he said nothing that was against Pope Francis. I think he's beginning to listen. And we need to listen to those people for whom the old church was very important. (laughs) The old church, Father Jerry, was very important. Uh, Sister Gramick spoke of of much more, but I want your reaction to what you heard there. Uh, This idea that it's a big listening session and that those in the old church, we should sort of give them a listen to. Well, sisters' powers of listening never were used to accept the rebuke and the canonical punishment she was given by both the American bishops and by the Holy See. She was told not to engage in her apostolate with homosexual people because she was misleading them. Her teaching was, in fact, contradictory to Catholic faith. Uh, Sister Gramic is actually engaged in a disgraceful pursuit to normalize the homosexual lifestyle. And what does that mean to normalize the homosexual lifestyle? It means what I said earlier, to say that sodomy is no longer a sin, that sodomy is somehow as good as natural sexual intercourse. This is the goal here, to have homosexuality as a practice accepted in the life of the church. Uh, Now, the regrettable thing, in in my opinion, is that when Pope Francis meets with these groups that promote the homosexual lifestyle, none of them come back and say to us, you know, the Holy Father told us we shouldn't be doing this. In fact, they come back and just say the Holy Father told us that, you know, we're doing an important work. We're doing something good. I've worked for years since I was a young priest with courage. I haven't seen the courage leadership being called to Rome and invited to come in to speak with Pope Francis and explain to, to them what authentic love means. Because let's get, let's get this point quite clear. When people practice a homosexual lifestyle and want to justify it, say the church doesn't love them, they're wrong. The church loves them by giving them God's truth. And I've heard plenty of confessions. I've given counseling to people. When you live a perverted lifestyle in which sexual immorality is the center of your existence, you're on the wrong path and you're a very unhappy person. So you need to repent and change. This isn't Father Murray's opinion. This is the teaching of the church and it's the pastoral wisdom of the church. So 
why in the world do people who think Catholic teaching is wrong suddenly get all these entrees uh, in the Holy See, and yet, you know, the people who accept the teaching are treated, as we say, heard so often, backwardists, nostalgics, people who are, she said the old church. What is she talking about? The church is Christ. It's the mystical body. It's ever young, ever new. The teaching of the church is not on a shelf gathering dust. It's in the heart and minds of believers. It's as powerful as the word of Christ was when he uttered it uh, as he walked the face of the earth. This, is, this sister is yeah. very wrong, and she's misleading people. Well, you heard her talk about the wanting to revive the spirit of Vatican II. The truth is, she's the old church. This is like 1972 flashback. You know, that's the old church. The new church are the young people at church. Talk to them. You'll find they're going to Latin masses. They're very devout. They have families. Very different approach. Anyway, Father, in an effort to create more synodal people and spread synod, the synod in the most synodiddly scrumptious way, America Magazine's Father Tom Reese wrote a column this week writing, quote, Catholics must experience the synod, must do synod. The best place to do this is your parish. Each parish in America can have its own synodal experience by adapting the synodal approach as described in the methodology for the working groups. So, Father, what he's advocating is an at-home edition of the synod. That's right. You can do synod wherever you are. Uh, is this where we're headed? Kind of tendential topics with a hat tip to prayer and then acceptance by applause on the parish level. Well, you know, <laughs> this is a problem. It's, it's nice that the subject of parish priest comes up because uh, Father Scott Newman, who's a parish priest here in South Carolina, he wrote an article online today in which he said, it's very sad that there are no parish priests involved in the synod, as far as we know. We've heard, you know who's representing parish priests in the synodal gathering? Uh, parish priests are the most important contact that most Catholics have uh, with the church. And, you know, the last thing that a parish priest needs is, a, is an undefined methodology in which people come together, express grievances, and accuse the church of not loving them. And then he has to sit there and say, well, you know what? Uh, I don't know what to do because it's, I'm not a shepherd of the church. I'm not the one authentically teaching. But what I am doing is I'm telling you the teaching of the church I learned in the seminary and that I was inspired when I read the mm -hmm. catechism to teach you. And I can't accept your complaints. So we're, we're devolving into this, what we would basically say is this never-ending therapy session in which the church is accused of being unca uncaring and unmotherly until she, until she basically says to all those crying to her with their complaints, okay, don't worry, we'll figure it out. No, that, that's not Catholicism. Mm. Yeah, well, you know, it's a, it's almost like a Ouija experience without the board, though you might be very bored when it's over. Uh, before we go on, Father, and I, I'm going to have to leave it here, the Synod has accepted amendments to that final report for this phase. They call it a synthesis document, the final summary document. It's expected to be reviewed Saturday on October 28th. Uh, Father, given all we've seen thus far, what do you expect to see in this summary, and what does it mean? Where does it leave us? Well, of course, it's dangerous to predict, and uh, things are not, have not been very publicly identified so far. What I'm afraid, though, is that the tone of the document will reflect the tone of the working document, the, the, the thing they use to, to base these discussions, which is basically church teaching practice and tradition 
is under a microscope, if not in the dock, and accused of failing to appeal to modern man, because not because modern man is obtuse or is asking for things he shouldn't have, but rather because the teaching of the church is inadequate, the practices are outdated, the traditions, of course, are better left in the past. Uh, if that's what comes out, then we're going to have a year of grief, uh, because we're going to have people telling us, the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking through the synodal assemblies telling us we have a brave new church in which everything that people don't like is reexamined and reshaped. You use the, the silly putty image. You know, is Catholicism like a, like a bowl of wax and we heat it up and roll it around and figure out what we're going to do with it? No, Catholicism is Christ. You know, where is Jesus Christ as the center of our efforts here? Did Jesus Christ come down and say, fellas, let's just walk around and see what we come up with? No. He sat people down and he said, you know, I have the words of eternal life. And then he taught us, you know, the Ten wow. Commandments, you know, the Beatitudes. People wanted to hear for the word of God. They didn't care what the neighbor's anguish was when the presence of God is there in front of them telling them the truth. You want to have your anguishes taken care of? Listen to Jesus. So let's, Raymond, we'll have plenty of time to talk about this over the next year. But if, it, if it's one of yeah. these accusatory documents, then we're in trouble. Yeah. Well, I, I, again, it's the ultimate cliffhanger because nothing happens. You've had a month of activity, uh, you know, that's been behind closed doors with little press reports and these press briefings, so-called briefings. Uh, and, and now this is held over till next October when presumably things will crystallize and then the pope will make some decision. But who really knows, Father? It's all synodal. So we will, in our synodal way, move on here. <laughs> Thank you for being with us. Uh, for commentary from Father Jerry Murray, you can go to thecatholicthing.org. Thank you, Father. Thank you. Okay, on a much happier note, I have a big announcement. So I'm really excited about this. It's nearly November, and we're going out on my Christmas Merry and Bright concert tour to five cities at the end of November. I'm so looking forward to sharing wonderful songs with you, some special guests. I hope you and your families will come along. We're kicking it off Saturday, November 25th in Phoenix, Arizona. Then Sunday, December 3rd in Dallas at the House of Blues. Friday, December 8th in Tampa at the Straz Center. Friday, December 15th in Cleveland in the grand finale on Thursday, December 21st at the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville. Jose Feliciano will join me in Dallas and Nashville. The great Frankie Avalon is joining me in Cleveland. Boy, do we have some other incredible special guests, but I can't share those with you just yet. Go to RaymondArroyoChristmas.com. Links to all the tickets are there. And please tell your family, your friends, your parish, come and see us as a group. It's really going to be something. And of course, my new record, Christmas Merry and Bright, is out in stores streaming right now. It'll enrich your Christmas. I hope refocus you and yours on the reason we celebrate it. It's available now from Barnes & Noble, Amazon, EWTN's catalog, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your music. It's also been Amazon's number one jazz vocal title for weeks. All due to you. Thank you. And my book, which is perfect for the holiday season, The Magnificent Mischief of Tad Lincoln, is the origin story of a great national tradition and Thanksgiving itself. It's also the tale of the relationship between the president, Abraham Lincoln, and his son, Tad. It's available now at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, the EWTN catalog, wherever books are sold. Visit RaymondArroyo.com for all the details. He's a two-time college football national champion. He won the Heisman Trophy in 2007, 
while playing for the University of Florida. He's also been a first-round NFL draft pick, ESPN contributor, a former professional baseball player. What hasn't he done? Well, five-time New York Times bestseller books. Uh, and he joins us tonight with an inspirational new book, Mission Possible, one-year devotional. Please welcome Tim Tebow to the program. Tim, thanks for being here. In a recent Instagram post, you admit to being a people pleaser and that you had to change your mindset from pleasing people to earning their respect to grow yeah. closer to God and bring others closer to him. And you attribute this quote by Winston Churchill with helping you see the need for change. If you have enemies, good. It means you stood for something at least once in your life. How did that quote change you and how you go about bringing others closer to God? Wow, Raymond, that's a, a good question. You did some research in your homework. So um, I, I, by you nature, bet. I am such a people pleaser, man. I wanted to I want to be friends. I would want people to like me. I still want people to like me. It's my nature. I, I'm just not someone that um, easily, I, I'm not bold like my dad is naturally. And so I, I just especially remember getting to college and on that kind of next level, that platform of, of scrutiny and, um, and fame somewhat, but just, you have all these people. And I just remember getting scrutinized on another level. And I just, remember going home and saying to dad, like, dad, man, if, if they, if these people would get to know me, dad, I think they would like mm. me. And and I just remember my dad looks at me and he said, Timmy, they probably would if they really got to know you because you are likable. But unfortunately, mm. Timmy, some people, they won't even want to take the time to get to know you and they don't want to actually like you. And it was at a time when I was also mm. reading uh, about Winston Churchill. And that's where I, I, I saw that quote. And I was impacted by it yeah. because I was thinking, how in the world, Raymond, could it be good to have enemies? Like, do, don't we want to try to be friends with everyone? And and it was kind of understanding the difference between being friends, being friendly, being liked versus being mm -hmm. respected. And what I would come to kind of understand about Winston Churchill is because he stood for something, a lot of people didn't like him because they couldn't see what he saw. They didn't believe what he believed. And even the Allies thought he was going to lose the war for the Allies. And if you're on the other side, you hated him because he was your enemy. But right. but they didn't understand it. But one day they came to respect him for it. And now we, we talk about Winston Churchill and, and most people are like, wow, you know, it's incredible what he's done, what he stood for, all of his writings, all his beliefs. And, and it was because he was willing to stand for something when a lot of other people um, weren't willing to. I was also, um, you know, in that time studying the scriptures and reading John 16, 33, which is one of my favorite verses. And it's Jesus talking to his disciples the night before he goes to the cross. And he looks at them, and he says, for in me, you have peace in the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome mm. the world. And, and it was something that was really impactful to me at that same time. It was saying, oh my gosh, like, really, what I was looking for was peace in relationships because I'm a people pleaser when I need to be looking for peace in my relationship with Christ and that I will mm. have trial and tribulations. And that doesn't mean we're not trying to be friends or friendly and, and love everyone. It just means that's not right. where we find our peace. We find it in him. 
And, um, and, and that was a big transition for me of, of still trying to love people, but more so instead of trying to earn likes, it was earn respect. Tim, you were born in the Philippines to missionary parents. How did they inspire you to want to share your faith? Because they're my biggest role models. Um, my mom being someone who is very rarely ever growing up that I hear her say a bad word about anyone. And she would always tell us um, what is desirable in a man is his kindness. Um, going back to scripture and then and uh, she would sing to us and sing verses to us. And that just made a massive impact. And my dad probably being my greatest hero because not what he he said to us, but what he showed us in his life of giving the majority of his adult life to helping people that could never help him and and never do anything for him. And then his courage and his conviction and his urgency to do it, to get to as many hurting people, to help as many people as possible, to take the hard steps, to to be able to go places very few would go, to, um, you know, be able to um, you know, it's how we, it's how I got involved also in the, the fight against human trafficking is to be able to, you know, my, my dad in an underground pastor's conference in remote country bought four girls that were being auctioned off to be able to, to buy them, to set them free, right? Like that's the, mm. the hero that my dad has been to me. And to be able to see that, that love isn't just a feeling and it's not just, a, um, uh, it's not just, you know, these butterflies we get, but the greatest form of love is a choice to choose the best interest of another person and act on their behalf. It's what Jesus did for us. It's what I've seen my dad do for so many people. It's what too many times. I've failed that, but I want to get better, that I want to choose people's best interests and act on their behalf. And that's why he's my hero. Tim, you attribute your life's purpose to when you were a 15-year-old boy in the jungle of the Philippines. And tell me what happened, who you met there that changed your life. I met a young boy named Sherwin who was born with his feet on backwards. And because he was born that way, his village viewed him as cursed, as less than, as insignificant. Mm. And he was treated as a throwaway. Um, But I fell in love with that boy and I knew... um, that he wasn't a throwaway to God. And I so felt on my heart that God was pricking my heart to say, he better not be a throwaway to you, Timmy, because he's not a throwaway to me. And I knew that day that I love sports. I love competing. I love trying to be the best I could be. But it's not what I was supposed to do with my life. What I was supposed to do with my life was to fight for boys and girls around the world Mm. like him that are being viewed as less than because they're not to God. And I know that they better not be to me. And there are so many people Mm. around the world that still to this day, as we are having this conversation, still viewed as less than, as insignificant. And there are throwaways. And we have to do a better job of getting to every single one of them because they have great worth. They have great value to God and they better have it to us. Tim, in 2010, you created the Tim Tebow Foundation, which uh, focuses on really several ministries, people with special needs, orphan care, uh, children with profound medical needs, human trafficking victims, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, You're about to build a camp for children in the Poconos, 3,000 acres of land. What inspired you to start the foundation and, and where is it now? Where do you see it going? 
Well, the the foundation was really inspired by that boy in the Philippines. And when I graduated from Florida, Mm. it's one of the first things we did. Um, And I wrote the mission statement to bring faith, hope, and love to those needing a brighter day in their darkest hour of need. And I wrote that literally just thinking about Sherwin, where he was in his life and what he needed is he was in the darkest hour of need and he needed people to love him enough to bring faith, hope, and love to him, to his situation. And that is our heart. That is our heart's cry to get as many places Mm. as we can around the world. We're so grateful that God has opened doors for us to now be in over 70 countries around the world. Um, But we have to get farther into all those countries, into more countries to get to every single hurting person. And and what you're referring to with with Rising Light Ridge is the the camp in the Poconos that we have um, already serving kids, but we're still, we broke ground and we're building the camp out. But while we're building it, we're still serving in the meantime. And and really that camp is called Rising Light Ridge. And it is a place where we want everybody to find belonging. We want everybody to be loved, to be served, to be cared for, to know their worth and their value. That's why we call it a place of belongings, because everybody belongs in the family of God. And we want to be able to share that. And we want people to know that. And, mm. and we want to be able to serve people with special needs. We want to be able to serve people who haven't had the chances before. We want to be able to serve people um who, who come from um, from harder areas, from don't have as many opportunities. We want to be able to serve people who have been in one of the greatest evils in the world and in, um, in, in trapped in that the terrible place of human trafficking. We want to be able to serve all these people. So um, that is our heart. Uh, the, the land was was given to us, and now it is it, it is our heart to be able to give it to those that, that are hurting so that they can find joy, they can find hope, they can mm. find peace, and they can find restoration. Tim, before we run out of time, I have to get to your new book, uh, Mission Possible, one-year devotional. Uh, In a recent video you posted on social media, you ask people if they're committed to reading the Bible as they are to drinking a cup of coffee each morning. And you point out that it takes just that time, the time it takes to brew a coffee, you could read several reflections in your book. What do you find are the biggest obstacles keeping people from making that commitment each day? I think it's our mindset. I think it's the consistency. I think it's all the things that are thrown at us every day. I mean, Raymond, let's just be honest. How many Mondays have I woke up in my life and I've got caught up in all the different things that have been thrown at me, the busyness of life, the um, the clutter of life, the things I feel like I got to get to. And um, you, even though I'm someone that... I, I've I've been taught the truth and I know it. I still let things get in the way. And so it's encouraging people. Mm. Let's not let things get in the way. Let's start with the, a mission mindset. Let's get into God's Word. And that's why every day we start with um, with portions of Scripture, and then we try to make it practical, and then we try to encourage them a- along the way. Um, but, but just for two to five minutes, if we could just start our day you know, in God's Word, and then also with encouraging stories, well, we can frame our mindset to be prepared for that day, because in that day, we can get caught up in so many distractions, and that's been true in my life so many days. I've just been caught up with all the things I have to do rather than starting it with the right framework, with the right mindset in God's Word, with the right encouragement, and the right challenges as well. Is that something we also want to challenge people, you know, to to get uncomfortable, to give a little little bit more, to care a little bit more, to pray a little bit more, to serve a little bit more. And then we also really, really, really want to encourage people because Raymond, we all know this. Life can be hard. It can have disappointments. It can have pain. It can have frustrations. And so we want to be able to encourage people. You know what encouragement means? It means to give support, confidence, or hope to. And when people pick this up, Mm. I, I hope and I pray that they they feel supported in God's word, in God's promises, yeah. in God's love them. I, 
I hope that they have hope and, and I hope that they have confidence and mm-hmm. And, and who they were created to be and how much God loves them and how he has a special, special plan and purpose for their life. And Tim, we should tell people uh, th- there's usually a Bible quote, uh, a reflection. And of course, then it's some of your insights, sometimes using sports analogies or things that happened in your life. And then usually a series of questions to kind of jumpstart the day. Why did you decide to, to use that form to create this well, devotional? Because I think it's a lot of different ways that we can learn from and be impacted. I think sometimes um, when we give people thoughts on reflections, um, first of all, it's always important to start with Scripture because that's God's Word. It's His promises. It's His love letter to Mm -hmm. us. and It's always the right place to start. And then, you know, coming up with some different thought-provoking questions. And and I even, um, in 31 of these devotionals, um, they're, they're written by other people that are heroes of mine, that some of them are parents who have lost their children to to diseases. Some of their kids with life-threatening illnesses. One of them is a survivor of human trafficking. And I wanted the world to be able to hear some of their story because I also think that, that they're just inspirations to me. And I think they will be inspirations to so many people. But it's also how in those tough situations, how God has used their pain um, to turn it into purpose and how God has used their pain because they've given it to him to, to use it for good and how all of us have gone through hard times. But, but our God is a big God that is also sovereign that can use all of those things um, together um, for good to those that love him. Okay, Tim, I've saved the most difficult question for last. You titled (laughs) this devotional after your book, Mission Possible, which was about creating a life that counts. Um, Tell us, before we run out of time, how do you discern what God is calling you and what your mission in life is? How does one figure that out? That's really good. Well, first, I think it starts by knowing that you have one, knowing that you were created on purpose for a purpose. It's understanding that God of this universe really does have a purpose for all of us. What does even purpose mean? The reason we were created, the reason we exist. You could also say mission, a task or a job someone has been given to do. That's why we titled it Mission Possible. What is possible means? It means to be able. And I believe every single one of us has a purpose and a mission, and we are able to accomplish it. How do we know that? What? How, how do we know what it is? Well, I think in the macro, we all have the same. And it's to love the Lord your God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But in the micro, I think we all have different ones. How do we live that out? Well, that's really hard. You're going to see a lot of different people talk about it to try to figure out, try to understand it. But I want to encourage people to look at it this way. What have your eyes been opened to and what has your heart been pricked for? And in and, and those moments in your life, we talked about when I had the chance to meet Sherwin, right? That day, my eyes mm-hmm. were open to something I hadn't seen and my heart was pricked to do something about it. When we have those moments, when we have those chances, let's step into it. Even if we get uncomfortable, even if we're not sure, even if we don't have the, all the answers, that's okay. Let's dive into it because even whether that is your 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 in purpose or not, I also believe that it can help lead you to wherever we're supposed to go next. But I would also encourage people, you know, God can do anything that he wants. But I don't usually see a lot of people that their life's getting impacted just by watching, you know, two, three, four seasons of the latest Netflix shows or just scrolling. (laughs) And so why God can use that to impact people, I don't. I don't see it a lot, but I do see when people are willing to step outside of their comfort zone a little bit 
and to, to care, to serve, to help in places, how he can use that so much in our life to, to grow us, to let us see the next thing we're supposed to do. And he can use Netflix, but man, I don't know that I, I see him doing that with a lot of people. And, you know, maybe if we just put that down a little bit and, and, and I'm guilty of it too. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's fun for me and my wife to watch our favorite show, but every now and then we just need to put it down and see, okay, hey, maybe what's the next greatest way we can go serve? Well, I I love that you're encouraging people to be spiritually watchful. You know, I I just wrote a book on the wise men, and they were watching. They were looking beyond their earthly experience to something else and then to act on that. And that's really what this devotional is about. Mission Possible, one-year devotional, 365 days of inspiration for pursuing your God-given purpose by Tim Tebow is available at bookstores everywhere and online. Tim, thank you so much for being here. We'll do this in person sometime soon. I love it. Raymond, thanks for all the the research and the questions. Man, you did your homework. I love it. That was fun, man. Well, thank my producer, too. We We try to respect our guests enough to raise the bar. So thank you, Tim. I love it. Appreciate you, man. Thank you. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.